welcome to Antibodies. This is our 26th episode in the Immunology 101 series, a segment where we teach immunology. Joining me today is my lovely co-host, Ash. How are you today, Ash? I'm doing great. It's a nice and bright uh, morning here in Maine. I am actually quite excited because I've been getting a lot of uh, chatter about a recent article that I wrote. So that's been a lot of fun this week. Oh, is that the Springer Nature article? It is. It is. Yeah. Did you see it? <laughs> I saw it. That's awesome. You know what? For our audience, if you guys are interested, do look up Ash's Twitter and yeah, you'll find you'll find this uh, paper in the top of her feed. Yeah. Ash, can you tell us what's your Twitter handle? Uh, I, I believe it is Ash M. Gardner. Uh, just at Ash M. Gardner. Yes, please check it out. Yeah. Also, it's a it's a nice day in here in San Francisco. When I say nice, it's like it's almost not gloomy because mm. it's mostly foggy here where I live. But yeah, I'm also very excited for what we're going to discuss today. I am also really excited for our discussion today. Uh, I will, if it's okay with you, start reviewing the last episode. Let's do that. Cool. So in the last few episodes, actually, we've talked about mostly the humoral response and, and most specifically antibodies. So we talked about the different classes, their functions, and then how they bind to cells through the FC receptors. We also discussed how this has an impact on the entire immune response during infection. Yeah, I think we're just about done with antibodies. We have spent quite a lot of episodes and time with antibodies. It's nice to think about changing gears. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, so I think it is now time to pre press that mental save button on all of that information so we can start on our next chapter, cytotoxic T-cells, also known as CTLs or CD8 positive T-cells. Ah, so we're transitioning from humoral immunity to cellular immuni immunity today, is it? Yes. Well, then, I got something. <laughs> uh, did you hear that cytotoxic T cells are terrible at making friends? I did not hear that before. Well, I think it's because they lack any humor. Oh, <laughs> my God. That one was... That one was not, that one was funny. That one was funny. Not, not very I'll funny. probably reconsider this and edit it out at the end while going through the editing process. <laughs> I like it's it. It's almost like this never happened. <laughs> <laughs> Eggs thrown on stage. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm excited to make this move from antibody effector functions to cellular effector functions. We've got some interesting things coming up today. I'm also very intrigued about our favorite cell, Ash, it's the T cell. Uh -huh. Do you know the simplest way to identify when you look at, at a very complex system like a, let's say an immune system, Makes what sense. would be the simplest way to identify how important a certain component is for a system? So the basic scientific method that you learned in high school uh, would be probably to remove that component from the system and, and see what changes. That's correct. In this case, in order to identify how important T cells are, we can look at individuals who have a disorder, such as in this case, we'll take, a, take the example of a disorder called DeGeorge syndrome. Patients with this syndrome are born without a thymus and therefore they lack any responses that require T cell intervention. 
So yeah, you can use this as a case study to see how important T cells are. Let's see what happens in these patients. These patients are generally able to cope well with extracellular pathogens, but they cannot deal with intracellular pathogens such as viruses or intracellular bacteria. So essentially you're saying that the humoral immune components such as antibodies and complement, they can take care of extracellular infections, but not intracellular infections. That is correct. And this is the part where T-cell responses, both helper and cytotoxic T-cells, become quite important. Also, when we make statements like uh, mostly important for extracellular or mostly important for intracellular, the mostly part has to be very <clears throat> accentuated mm -hmm. because as uh, our audience may know throughout this course or throughout these podcasts in biology, absolute things almost never exist. So there is all going to be a gray area, but when we say mostly, take that with mostly in mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so taking that in mind then, are T-cells not involved with the extracellular response? Well, T-cells are also utilized during the extracellular responses. They are just a little bit more dispensable in that regard compared to intracellular responses. If our audience is interested in learning more about how T-cells affect humoral responses, they can look back at episode 22 and episode 23 of the series. Those episodes provide some crucial information about this type of T-cell called follicular T-cell that assists B-cells in making, well, great antibodies. Subtle episode plug, I like it. Well, as a great man once said, podcasting is 10% about producing great content and 90% about replugging old content. Uh, I'm pretty sure those numbers are not scientifically proven. Uh, maybe we should use the scientific <laughs> method here. Well, we, we've digressed enough. That's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's continue talking about T-cells. Uh, taking a step back, there are two types of T-cells, helper and cytotoxic T-cells. We have painstakingly described the many fates a helper T-cell may take in episode 18 of this series. So if the audience needs a refresher on what types of helper T-cells are out there, that's a good episode to check out. Hey, nice plug there again. <laughs> Thank you. This went almost naturally. And also, see, we are getting to that 90% point that that great man once said. Yeah, yeah, 90%. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to hate, though. This was, this was, this episode 18 was my first episode with antibodies, so it's quite special to me. Well... Thanks to that wonderful episode, the topic of helper T-cells have been covered for now. And now we can spend some quality time talking about cytotoxic T-cells. Before cytotoxic T-cells can participate in the immune response in a meaningful way, they first need to be activated. This process occurs in two phases. The first phase is when a naive CD8 positive T-cell or a cytotoxic T-cell that is, a knife being a cell that has not been yet activated, encounters their target antigen for the first time ever. In this phase, they will undergo activation and differentiation into functional effector cytotoxic T lymphocytes, or as we call them, CTLs. This process normally occurs within secondary lymphoid tissue. Yeah, so... It's really, if I may interrupt, it's really important to remember here too that the activation of a naive CD8 T cell, it involves two signals. Well, really three signals. Uh, signal one, 
comes from the MHC class one and TCR interaction that we've talked about. Signal two comes from the costimulatory molecules on antigen presenting cells or APCs. Uh, and then signal three comes from the cytokines that are released from normally from the APCs. Uh, that's what the context that we've talked about before anyway. So this process is slightly different though in cytotoxic T cells from helper T cells um, because cytotoxic T cells, these naive CD8 T cells will bind to MHC class one and not class two. And because alongside dendritic cells, helper T cells can also assist cytotoxic T cell activation. And they do this by in two ways, it, by enhancing dendritic cell function, and then also by participating in that signal three and releasing the cytokines uh, that, that will bind to the CD8 T cell. That's some very important information, Ash. I appreciate you highlighting these subtle differences between helper and cytotoxic T cell activation. Now that the this naive cytotoxic T cell has been activated, we can move to the second phase Again, here, the effector CTL or cytotoxic T lymphocyte, as we call it in this phase, will go into the circulation and peripheral tissues and look for specific peptides presented on class 1 MHC molecules on other cells. When the cell finds such a target that is expressing the right combination of MHC and the peptide, it will release nasty stuff like granzyme B and perforins into the cell, causing the target cell to undergo apoptosis. Oh, right. That's that's how CTLs will get rid of virally infected or intracellular bacterial, intracellular bacterial <laughs> infected cells. Uh, yeah. Difficult to say, but it's actually, they're actually killing the cell, not just the bacteria. Right, right. Yeah. And could we also quickly brush up on the differences specifically between the MHC class one molecules and the MHC class two molecules and how they're related to pathogen identification? For sure. And I think it's a good discrimination to make right now, mostly since you mentioned before that this is where helper T cells and cytotoxic T cells differ as they receive their simulation either for class one or class two, depending on their cytotoxic or helper T cells. And it has also been a while since we have discussed all this. So no better time than right now. I completely agree. Let's go for this. <clears throat> First, all MHC molecules are like these, imagine them like these cups or bowls that hang out on the external surface of the cell membrane and they're capable of holding and presenting peptides. The first difference is all nucleated cells can express MHC class one. When actually, let me say not can, but will express class one MHC, while only certain privileged cells will express MHC class two. You can think of MHC class one as an identity card or a driver's license provided to every cell of a host organism, except that they don't have to be reach a certain age to get this. <laughs> they do have it all the time on them. Because you, you need MHC class one to hang out in the body without any issues, right? Yes, it's like your yeah, it's like your pass to be in the body. <laughs> if you don't express this, you're going to be in trouble. And we will probably discuss that in another episode, what happens when you don't have a class one MHC. Right, so that was class one. 
and class two different the first important difference between these two classes the second difference is the kind of peptides that populate mhc class one and class two they will differ a lot and the process for how these peptides will end up there is also unique when we talk about mhc class two these peptides are generated from proteins that have been phagocytosed from the external environment and chopped up in the endosomes. That's how peptides of non-cellular sources, even extracellular bacteria, can be found in class 2 MHC. So again, they're derived from things that have been received from the outside environment through phagocytosis or some form of endocytosis. On the other hand, MHC class 1 does not normally present extracellular proteins. For MHC class 1, any protein that has been produced by the cell within the cell can be chopped up into small peptides and can end up in the class 1 MHC. In case of healthy cells, it means peptides coming from only proteins that, make this, that the cells makes will be found there. Now, in case of, let's say, a virally infected cell, these peptides that are showing up on MHC class 1 will also come from viral proteins that are being made in the cell. And it's these unique viral peptides that when shown to the cytotoxic T cells in context of a class 1 MHC will trigger the cytotoxic T lymphocyte activation and all this killing process. So yeah, we've got these two important distinguishes from class 1 MHC and class 2 MHC. Okay, cool. So uh, let me just review that really fast so I thought I, I understand. So mm -hmm. MHC class 2 will present, will, will phagocytose things from the extracellular environment, present them, and then activate helper T cells. While right. MHC class 1, the way that it is loaded with antigen, it's from the intracellular environment. And so mm -hmm. anything damaging within the cell will be presented on the MHC class one. And because all cells express MHC class one, any cell in the body that's infected will be able to present these viral peptides that are being made within the cell to activate CTLs. Yes, actually not to activate CTLs because the activation process is driven by the antigen presenting cells. But once a, a T cell has been, well, I think I guess like a secondary I, guess, I know I know I know what you mean by activation It's just um yeah I think I think we may be confusing that word here so I guess if it if an activated cytotoxic toxic T cells finds or comes across this peptide on a host cell that is not in the context of an antigen presenting cell now then it can go and do it's the action which in case it's killing or making cytokines and whatever it wants to do i remember when i was learning this in in grad school that that was so complicated to me that everyone would use activation in both senses to like <laughs> to like prep the cell to be able to respond and then actually mm -hmm. cause the cell to respond like people right called both of those activation and it always was confusing so thank you yeah that's very confusing and i i knew exactly what you were saying but that's just i wanted to backtrack in case we're confusing our listeners yeah but i appreciate yeah. that you could you could teach an mhc class <laughs> well, <laughs> but i actually i'm not a fan of teaching the stuff in the inside the cell it's quite complicated so i'm glad i don't have to but yeah thank you <laughs> okay with that, we can come back to some more fun stuff about the cytotoxic T lymphocytes. 
as we have talked about the two phases of cytotoxic T cells, the naive cytotoxic T cells and the effector cytotoxic T lymphocytes, I would like to dive a bit into detail with the T cell activation process. Do you remember when we talked about an antigen presenting cell being required to activate a no naive cytotoxic T cell as part of signal 2? Yes. Well, if I must be accurate, I would say that a licensed antigen presenting cell is required for this purpose. Oh, I thought I thought APCs were already special special. So how what is a licensed antigen presenting cell? Yes, let's talk about it. And let's see what it takes to get, for example, a dendritic cell. We'll take that as a quintessential antigen presenting cell. What it takes to get this dendritic cell or DC licensed. One way to get it licensed is through sensing microbial products through toll-like receptors or some other pattern recognition receptor. Another way of getting licensed is to get help from helper T cells in the form of cytokines, or through direct contact. Because actually, helper T cells can also express their own co-stimulatory surface molecules that activate dendritic cells. Okay, so either DC needs to be licensed directly sensing the pathogen, or if a T cell found it in a different place, it can come and help mm -hmm. the dendritic cell also. Okay, could you give me an example of a cytokine and co-stimulatory molecule on these helper T cells that would assist in DC licensing? For sure. So I'll give you one example of each. First, interferon gamma is a cytokine that helper T cells, well, mostly T helper 1 cells, will make to license dendritic cells. On the co-stimulatory side, CD40, CD40L, where L stands for ligand, is expressed by T cells that will bind to its receptor, which is simply CD40, that is present on the dendritic cell. So, okay, if you think about this, this process must act like a regulatory checkpoint to prevent unwarranted cytotoxic T cell activation. Uh, so a dendritic cell has to receive these certain signals before it's even qualified to activate a cytotoxic T cell. And I guess that really makes sense, this licensing process, because considering the immense damage that a cytotoxic T cell could have, it, like, it makes sense to keep it in check. When it's, when it's not needed. Yeah, that's right. And, and we have seen many such regulatory checkpoints occur throughout these processes in the immune cells at the molecular level. Yeah, and we have discussed such processes in the previous episodes, and we'll continue to see this pattern in upcoming episodes. Our immune system is mostly just a tons of regulations just set in a way that things are only activated when they're needed to, and they care, they're they get rid of these things when their purpose has been fulfilled. It's it's a very brutal system. Yep, things are not allowed to linger on when they're not needed. But it's also very well. It's worked out. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So our our immune system has found a way to self regulate to get the job done with the least collateral damage. Now, if we come back to licensed dendritic cells, the next question we should be asking is. From a functional perspective, what changes in a licensed dendritic cell compared to an unlicensed dendritic cell? The simple answer here is the expression of co-stimulatory proteins CD80, where CD80 
and CD86, CD86. Both of these are co-simulated proteins that are expressed by licensed dendritic cells and the expression of these proteins increases upon getting licensed. And these are the proteins that will help in providing the second signal in the cytotoxic T-cell activation process. So, so just to be clear, the CD40 ligand is the co-stimulatory ligand, I guess, present on helper mm -hmm. T-cells that will bind to the receptor on dendritic cells. But CD80 and CD86 are co-stimulatory like, ligands present on dendritic cells that activate the receptors on cytotoxic T-cells? Yes, so there are co-stimulatory receptors and ligands present on both T-cells, helper T-cells, and on the dendritic cells. And the direction where the signal comes in does change based on which co-stimulatory receptor we're talking about. But yeah, so in a way, both dendritic cell and T-cells, well, helper T-cells could activate each other. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and, and these receptors, uh, well, in a different context, but yeah, it's, it's, it's something that often confuses people. This can be very confusing because these receptors are present on different cells and they have different purposes. And we do use this umbrella term, co-stimulatory receptor for both these cells. But the direction in which the co-stimulation co goes from does change. Yeah, this is such a complicated yeah. topic. I understand why people struggle. Yeah, yeah, this is part of the immunology that yeah, students hate to <laughs> say, put it mildly. <laughs> now, regarding dendritic cell licensing, there is one more thing that a licensed dendritic cell can do, but an unlicensed dendritic cell cannot. A licensed dendritic cell can cross-present. Ooh, cross-present. What does that mean? This is a type of antigen presentation where an extracellular antigen can be picked up by the dendritic cell. And if you remember from our conversation, it's supposed to be presented on a class 2 MHC, but in this case, it gets presented on a class 1 MHC. And only when this exogenous antigen is presented on class 1 MHC, can the cytotoxic T cell be activated. So without cross-presentation, that instead of being presented on MHC class two, it's presented on MHC class one. Without that, the only way a dendritic cell could present a viral peptide on its class one to activate the, to do this original activation of, of the CTL would be actually by getting infected with the virus itself. And that you wouldn't really want that. Yeah. Right. Imagine the only way to get activated by a dendritic cell is to find a virally infected dendritic cell. <laughs> so I think now we need to tell our readers what happens when the CTLs are activated. Yes, we have we have gone through all this activation process. Now let's see what happens after that. Ash, would you like to <clears throat> lead this section of our discussion? Oh, of course. So in my opinion, unactivated CTLs are pretty boring. <laughs> they don't proliferate and they don't actually do any cell killing either, which is good. Um, but with all of these activation signals that a CTL gets, a few things happen in order for these processes to start. First, the CTL will upregulate the receptor for IL-2, which if you remember from previous episodes, IL-2 is a cytokine released by T cells to promote T cell survival, differentiation, and proliferation. 
so it's it's released sometimes by the same cell that it it uh, binds to. So for CTLs, IL two signaling is pretty important. So as you're saying that IL two is released by the T cells and it acts also on the T cells. Yeah. So. So it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And we we got into that discussion, if I'm going to plug an episode in uh, Buddy Sode 10, where where it's it's sometimes autocrine, sometimes paracrine, and there's some, some nuance there. So if you want to uh, go read up or listen, not read up, <laughs> listen to, mm-hmm. to that discussion, I would highly recommend it. Um, but for now... Let's just remember that IL-2 receptor is on the CTLs. And in addition to this activation of the CTLs causing an upregulation of IL-2 receptor, it also upregulates IL-2 production from the CTLs. Um, So thank you for that reminder and opportunity to clarify. Um, So then also incorporating the IL-2s with other activation signals leads to the CTL to become fully activated. And it's when the cell is fully activated by binding IL-2 that it begins to express the toxic proteins that you you talked about, like granzyme B and perforin. Oh, so does it just start releasing these toxic factors, killing everything that's around it? No, 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 no. They're packaged into little lytic granules. Granules? Yeah, like, like little cytotoxic pockets. And that are released at the infected cells? Well, yeah, yeah. To kill them? Yeah, to kill infected cells. So, so you're telling me CDAT cells make and hold on to these cytotoxic protein grenades <laughs> until they see an infected cell? Yeah, basically. That's that's why they're so well controlled and, and need both the helper T cells and the dendritic cells. And they also need these two phases of activation before they're able to throw these grenades. <laughs> The IL-2 receptor seems to be pretty important here. If it's one of the last things that is being expressed in this whole process of the CTL activation. Yeah, it really, really is because the CTLs can't proliferate until they go through the entire activation process and get the green light from multiple sources. And in this way, in this control causes only antigen-specific CTLs to be able to grow in numbers. And after these cells grow in numbers, do you want to know where they go? Um, are they just in the circulation? Uh, no, actually, they scatter all over the body. They migrate away from the lymphoid tissue, and they actually don't even go specifically to the place uh, that the infection is at initially. They go all over to the liver, to the kidneys, to the lung, to the gut, to the bone marrow. They just scatter. And that happens with every time there's an infection or that a cytotoxic T cell is activated and it proliferates? I mean, this is part of the mostly that we talked about, uh, mm-hmm. but but basically, yeah, there have been multiple studies on it. And so far, these studies have demonstrated that regardless of the original infection site, these CTLs will migrate to many different tissues. I guess that makes sense. Viruses can be nasty and they distribute themselves in multiple tissues rather so quickly. So, the, so, yeah, CTLs should do the same. Yeah, yeah. And and there is also control over that expansion as well. Uh, they don't have a super long half-life. So uh, 
when this infection is controlled and there's no longer that signal uh, to proliferate and migrate, the CTLs start to die off. And what's left over is a population of virus-specific memory cells. Ooh, we have packed a lot of information in this episode. Yeah. I think we should stop here. And would you like me to summarize what we have talked about so far? Yeah, I, I would love a summary in order for me to commit all of that to my memory. <laughs> that, that, that rhymed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, let me let me take this all together. All right. First, cellular immunity is essential for dealing with intracellular pathogens. Cytotoxic T cells require T uh, three signals for activation, similar to helper T cells. One place that they differ from T helper cells is that they also require assistance from the helper T cells, indirectly uh, and directly. Then, licensed dendritic cells can cross-present extracellular antigens on their MHC class 1 to activate cytotoxic T cells, and they also provide better co-stimulation than an unlicensed dendritic cell. Lastly, CTLs, cytotoxic T lymphocytes, once when they're activated, they hoard up a little cytotoxic grenade <laughs> and they travel throughout the body to find these cells that are expressing the antigen against which these CTLs have been activated so that they can throw this grenade on them. It's, it's, it's quite dark. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that was a really good summary. <laughs> All right. I think this would be a great point to wrap up our discussion. Thanks a lot, Ash, for this wonderful discussion here of course for our audience if you're interested to know more about our science communication endeavors please check out antibodies.org you can find our blogs journal clubs and podcasts there if you have any questions or suggestions you can email us at antibodies1 at the rate gmail.com with that i'm your host jatin sharma signing off until we meet again bye bye bye